Hey guys, welcome to episode 151 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we just want to start the episode like we always do. I hope no one ever gets tired of it um, by saying thank you to all of the listeners, all of you who left reviews or told a friend. It really helps the podcast. So we just want to say thank you. Yes, thank you guys. And of course... We are going to be thanking all of our new Patreon supporters at the end of the episode. So if you're new to Patreon or you haven't heard your name yet, stay tuned to the end of the episode because I will be saying your name hopefully correctly. Hopefully correctly. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Normally, I am not the one to come out and give you guys some good news. Usually it's Kay. But I'm going to let you guys know that starting in May... Um, We are going to be doing something a little different. I think we're going to start with what I like to call date night. All right. And what that's going to entail is me and Kay are going to be watching, um, you know, it could be maybe a dateline or some sort of some kind of TV show that has to do with true crime or documentary, either or Um, pretty much any kind of document, uh, any kind of true crime content we'll be watching. And we're actually going to be doing it live on our discord so anybody that's donating ten dollars and up will be able to go onto discord um, because we do have our patreon and our discord connected you'll be able to go onto discord and join our live channel and you'll be able to you know q a you know uh you could talk to us live i mean we'll have everyone um for lack of a better term, we'll have everyone muted, but you'll be able to talk to us through the chat while we talk and also watch the content. So I think that will give people, you know, a little more of us. I think it'll be really nice, a little intimate moment between us and you guys. Yes, we're super excited about that. And I think, you know, what we'll do is we'll hang around after the show is over for like a Q&A session if we didn't get to any of the questions that you submit in the chat. And I'm just super excited because it'll basically be like you're over our house watching Dateline with us. Right. And just so everybody gets this, you know, straight, this is in to- on top of everything else that we already provide yeah. you. Yeah. So um, we also want to try very hard to um, provide those things, continue to do that and make sure that we're on time with those things. So we're going to have a lot of things coming at you. This is just one of them. And obviously we're going to be tweaking it as time goes along. Right. So, you know, first iteration, it might not be (laughs) the best, but we are definitely going to work towards giving you guys more content, more us and just a good viewing experience. Yeah. We're excited to share that with you all. And when you join Patreon, we know that what you're giving to us is your hard-earned money. So we want to give you as much as we possibly can for what you are kind and generous enough to give us. And we thought the perfect day to start that would be Cinco de Mayo because then we could bring out the margaritas. And we know what happens when we bring out the margarita. Tequila we know. John we know. Out. Yes. My alter ego. It comes out. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was the perfect time to share all that great news. And that's pretty much all I have to say about that. Yeah, it is going to be really exciting. And of course, we want it to wait a few weeks to do it just so those of our Patreons that are at the $10 support range, they have the ability to sign up for Discord. And if you have any questions doing that, you can just send us an email or send us a message on Patreon and we could help you get signed up on on Discord. Yeah. And and if anybody who has already uh, connected uh, to their Discord and all that stuff, if anybody is out there that is 
part of our page, our Patreon community. If you also want to help anybody out as well, I mean, if we happen to not see it, right. you know, by all means, that would be cool. You could do that. So get the word out. Yeah, they have a cute little community in Patreon. It's really cute. Yeah. I like it. And my mom's all ready. She's ready. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. So without any further ado, I think we're just going to get right into this one. So, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? I'm all buckled up, ready to go. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. In the fall of 1993, Kay Whedon was over the moon. She had just met a charismatic man that she was quickly falling in love with. The single mother was a high school teacher in her 40s. How perfect. A woman named Kay, high school teacher. I mean, it's close. Just not the 40 part. Not the 40 part. Yet. Not yet. <laughs> yet. I still have seven years to go. But I thought this was a little creepy. That is interesting. Very close. So by the time she was in her 40s, she had discounted the idea that she would ever find true happiness or true love again because her last relationship, which was an engagement, had fallen apart. But there was a new man in her life and she was really excited about it. The man's name was Victor Gunnarsson. Victor was from Sweden and Kay loved to hear stories about what life had been like for him when he came to the United States seeking political asylum. Kay told others that although she had known Victor for only about six weeks, she felt like she had known him her whole life. It was just perfect. Like the two of them just meshed so well together. Yeah, I mean, that's always great when that happens. And he, Victor, had a really good relationship with Kay's teenage son, Jason. So the two of them really got along. And that was always something that was really important to Kay, of course, as a single mother, that the person that you're dating, you really want them to get along with your child because that's your first priority. Yeah, that is. It's really important, you know, because it's it's your kid after all. Exactly. And at the time, this is actually how her and Victor met. Kay was hosting a foreign exchange student from Sweden. So her friend said, well, I know somebody who's also from there. So it would be cool if the two of them met because maybe he could help get him acclimated. And that's how Kay was connected to Victor Gunnarsson. That's a cool story. Yeah, it is. And this whirlwind romance that the two of them were going through was really consuming for the both of them, but in a good way. Those in both Victor and Kay's life totally approved of their relationship. And that was why in early December, after they'd been together for six weeks, Kay was devastated when Victor suddenly stopped contacting her. He had, if we're going to use a modern term, like ghosted her. Well, that's not good. No. And that's so disappointing because you're just like, you're left wondering, what did I do? You know? Yeah. And also, what were his motives for even, you know, getting to know her? Like, wh- why ghost her? If you were going to do that the whole time, you know, like, what was what was to gain there? Right. Weird. Especially to have such a 
what was described as a whirlwind romance and then to just go radio silent it's kind of bizarre it is especially when you have a lot invested i mean you're putting hours and hours and days and days into a relationship to get to know somebody and then poof they're gone i know it must be weird i would not like that if that happened to me no me either this is why i'm glad i'm not in the modern dating pool it must be really hard for you guys that are i feel yeah i mean that's that's harsh so Kay would call him and he just wouldn't pick up. She would leave messages and he would never return them. He had given her no warning or had no conversation with her about this maybe being too much or him wanting to break things off. I mean, the last thing that happened between them was that they had gone on a wonderful date. They, When they got back to her house, they were hanging out around like a fire And the two of them had made plans to go the next morning with her son, Jason, to pick out a Christmas tree. I mean, it doesn't really get more, like, hallmarky than that. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. I wonder what would make someone just skip town unless he was murdered. Oh. Boom. (laughs) You never know. You know, this is a true crime podcast. Or maybe he's lying about his identity. At first glance here, we're trying to Ooh. just thinking, you know, just throwing out a couple of things. I mean, maybe he's not an exchange person or uh, a seeking asylum. Potentially Did true. I just say exchange person? Exchange person. You know what we I did. meant. I, you, we all knew what you meant. It's okay, John. <laughs> I don't think so, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I am I am an odd man. I'm odd. Um, <laughs> but no, seriously, he could be, he really could be, maybe that's not his identity. Maybe she's been dealing with a man who has a whole other life somewhere. And then maybe when he thought that it was getting too close, he he bailed. Yeah, has like maybe a mysterious past. Or it could be like stepfather vibes and he's like a killer. Oh, wow. Jeez. I don't know. All that these... just took a crazy, <laughs> crazy right there. If it was stepfather vibes, he would have stayed. All right, true, true. Unless Jason was like super dangerous. No, nah, I don't know. I'm just throwing out a couple things. But Kay figured like he must not have liked her as much as she thought he did to completely have just gone like silent and she was utterly destroyed by this because she believed that this was like her second well third chance at making things work and having a happy family and she was just kind of so exhausted with the whole dating thing at this point that she was kind of like I'm giving it all up which is totally understandable because we've all been in the same boat when you're like dating and you're just Something really bad happens and you're like, I'm swearing this off for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that old saying, like, you know, it, it comes to you when you least expect it kind of thing. Right. Because I think that that's true, you know, for most people, but not not everyone. But I could understand her, like, being just annoyed by it. Yeah. So as she went through her heartbreak and mourned the life that she thought she was going to have with Victor, something worse happened. On Thursday, December 9th, less than a week after she had stopped hearing from her boyfriend, Kay showed up at work and was preparing to teach her first lesson when she saw her mother's boss and co-worker in the school. And it was odd that they would be there, she thought. They didn't have children in the district, and it is always kind of unsettling when you see people that we know in one aspect of our lives show up in another it's almost like these two worlds can't mesh together and Kay felt and knew that because they were there that that must have meant that there was something wrong Paul Brown her mother's boss 
let her know in his soft voice that her mother had not come to work that day. He said that if it had been anyone else, they wouldn't have been concerned about it. But as you know, he said, your mother never misses work and she's never late. So she worked as a clerk in his office. And Brown told her that they had called the sheriff's department and asked them to perform a wellness check. But they had come by the school to let her know that the sheriff was headed there now. And Kay and her mother and this whole story is taking place in Salisbury, North Carolina. So, I mean, this is a very southern thing to do. We're just, it's a a courtesy to come let you know, very friendly. Everyone's very concerned. It's kind of like the southern way. Okay, we're lacking that a little bit up here. Yes, we do not know that world. <laughs> no. Um, it would really just be like an angry phone call, like you're fired. No, hang it, up the phone. It would be, yeah, well, not only that, but it would also be like, oh, you want us to check on this person? Yeah, we can't do that. Uh, and then like 12 days later, my body's found in a chair. You're fine. Just, yeah, like, where you were playing video yeah. games, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so Kay left straight away with Paul Brown and her mother's colleague. Because she wanted to know what had happened. And at that point, she had a pit in her stomach. She told her colleagues that were covering her classes not to inform her son or the foreign exchange student she was staying with because she didn't want them to find out, or especially Jason, obviously, because that's his grandmother, to find out something was wrong from one of his teachers. Like, if something was wrong, Kay wanted to know for sure, and then she would come back and tell Jason. Right. She didn't want to worry him without having to worry him. Catherine Miller lived in the same development as her daughter, the West Cliff, which was just about four miles west of Salisbury, which, and I'm sorry if you're from North Carolina and I'm saying it wrong, I most likely am because little towns usually are pronounced totally differently than they're spelled. So my apologies in advance. So when Kay and others arrived at 118 Larch Road, they saw the Rowan County Sheriff's officers were already there. Feeling nauseous, Kay got out of the car and approached the house. The deputies told her that they had been unable to get inside because they didn't have the keys. She told them that she did have keys to her mother's house, but she would have to go to her own house, which was located down the road. And she was kind of really frantic at this point, and she remembered thinking, well, why, if it's a wellness check and we're really concerned about her, why don't they just break down the door? Like, she was kind of confused because I guess she had in her head that that's what people or the sheriff's department did. But instead, what they did was they drove her down to her house so they could retrieve the key. Because if everything's fine, they don't want to do property damage. Right, of course. I mean, they're really just there to check the well-being of the person. Most likely, uh, or most of the time, I'm sure, they, they ring the doorbell and they answer, oh, you know, okay, you're fine. Time to leave. Yeah, or so, the person's sleeping or something right. like that. So they drove Kay to her house to get the keys and they did so. And then they drove back to the mother's house. And this really only took minutes because she lived just down the road. But Kay realized as she was trying to open 
her mother's door. And this is like kind of the side door that leads into the kitchen. That's really where they usually entered the house from that she because she was so frantic, she had grabbed the wrong key ring. She grabbed her extra house keys and not her mother's house keys. So the key wasn't fitting in the door. And at this point, Kay is so emotional that she really just begs them and gives them permission to break down the door or to forcefully enter. Okay. So see, they will do that. So once the door had been broken open, Kay was told to wait outside while two deputies investigated the scene. Kay noticed right away that her mother's security alarm didn't go off meaning that it hadn't been armed. So like when they kind of broke the lock, there was no alarm that went off. And in addition to that, because that kind of set alarms off for her, um, she remembered that when she first tried to get in with the wrong set of keys, that her mother's storm door was open. And she knew that it was a habit of her mother's to always lock the storm door. So she thought that that was odd. Yeah, it's all the like these little things that you just know about your mother or whoever that right. that's not normal. Right. So when the first deputy tried to get in, he felt a little bit of resistance against the door. Something had been blocking it. Now, not wanting to disturb any created scene because this is something that was odd or potential crime scene, he pushed the door open just enough so he could like kind of squeeze his way inside. Immediately, he was met with a strong smell. He looked to the stove and saw that there were beans cooking, now very badly burnt. And blood. The smell of blood hung heavy in the air, overpowering even the burning smell of food. He looked around the door to see what blocked his entry, and that was when he saw the body of Catherine Miller in a large pool of blood. The 77-year-old woman had been shot twice in the head, as evident by gunshot wounds to the top of her head, and the large spray of blood spatter on the refrigerator behind her. He knelt down and checked her pulse. It was as he expected. Gone. So he backed out of the house and called the detectives to the scene. He then had to break the news to the woman's daughter, who was standing directly behind him. So that is wild. There's this woman that has this pattern of life that is so like nailed down that people know that there's going to be something wrong if she doesn't go to work, if she didn't lock the door that way. And I mean, they were right. Yeah. I mean, that's a really hard situation to be in. Uh, even, like, for, first off, the officer, the responding deputies that, that go in there, imagine when you have time to like brace yourself to tell somebody the news that someone that they love is dead when they have time to like process them process that themselves to deliver that message it's still hard but imagine they're behind you while you're discovering that and have to literally turn around and say ma'am uh, your mother passed you know, your mother's murdered like your mother right. or your mother's dead you know that's crazy it's not even like it it appears as if there was some medical emergency. It was like she was murdered. And this man has just seen this horrific crime scene. There was blood everywhere. I mean, this woman was shot twice in the top of her head. And the scene had been there for a while. So that it was congealed and it was like dried, dripping down the refrigerator. 
he is also a human being that's dealing with having to have seen that, but he kind of has to pull it together for himself to tell Kay in a way that's going to be as respectful as possible. That's hard to do. And then, uh, you know, for Kay to hear that kind of news, I'm sure, was devastating. Yeah. But, you know, um, you know, we're dealing with a lot of inconsistencies in her day in the mother's day to day routine. Right. So I think that that's right, right off the bat, a clue. Like, I don't want to get into it now, but that's a clue in itself right there. Everything in the home and all the things that she did not do that she is accustomed to doing. That's that might help investigators maybe find out who did this. Right. I think that's a good point because if Kay knows like, okay, it's weird. This was unlocked. It's weird. This happened and that happened. That means that the person that did this and left the scene maybe didn't know those things. Right. So investigators at this scene determined that Catherine Miller must have been knocked down or pushed down while she'd been cooking at home. And she must have known her attacker because she had let them in. The storm door had been open, so she must have opened it for somebody and the killer on their way out must have locked the door. Catherine had been dressed in work clothes that she had worn the day before. So what they were assuming was that she was preparing a meal, a very simple meal of like navy beans. And then someone interrupted her. There was no large scene of struggle, so the murder must have happened quickly. But law enforcement took note right away that they believed that someone had tried to make the scene look like there had been a struggle or a robbery of some sort. Some drawers were open in the kitchen, but everything inside them was still neatly in its place. And in the living room, everything had kind of been knocked off of the coffee table, kind of like someone swiped it all off in one fluid motion. That's that's a bit odd and also very interesting. Like, okay, you make a fair point by saying that. Think about it. If someone is trying to be sophisticated by setting up a scene like this, it's playing into the strength of we're targeting an old 77-year-old woman. If we go in there and make it look like it's a robbery, it plays into that, which right. would make investigators go in a different direction than the one that is being truly done. You know what I'm saying? Totally. So, yeah, they're playing into the strength of it's an old woman that they targeted. But this is so frustrating because every time somebody tries to stage a scene to make it look like a robbery, they always do it wrong. Yeah, because it's hard to re. You cannot reenact s- specific things of a crime. It like is so hard. Like I, I think back to the one that we did. It was a long t- uh, for at this point. It's a long time ago, but it was the one where he was a police officer and he like pretty much like made the whole scene look like he got shot. Remember that? Right. Yeah. Um. You know, even that he 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 himself was somebody who knew crime well enough to orchestrate his own plan and it still didn't work and he still couldn't do it so i find that very hard to do i almost impossible i'll say almost impossible well i mean i don't want my criminals to be smart i don't either let's keep them dumb i I don't either i'm just trying to say that i'm just saying they always screw it up yeah it's it's never gonna work out right something if you're trying to stage something to make it look like a robbery dude take something i don't understand yeah like that one like the one case where they took the phone and i was like well that's that must be yeah Yeah. that must be something right i mean it's, it's the only thing but anyway so when it came to the murder they believed it had been a surprise attack 
And after she'd been knocked down, it seemed like the killer had stood over her and fired two shots into the top of her head. We would find out later, once the autopsy was completed, that Catherine had been shot at close range, approximately at a distance of 12 inches, or 30 centimeters, by a snub-nosed 38 Colt revolver. I feel like a snub-nosed 38 is always used. It is like... Um... For anybody who likes movies that like are like gangster movies, I feel like it's always the gun used. It's like, you know. It's the gangster gun. The mob. Yeah, the gangster gun. Yeah. Interesting. You always bring the gun knowledge. Yeah, I mean. Because I, I write these down and I truly, I have no idea what they mean. I'm going to be yeah, honest with you. I mean, I know, I know a decent amount. I wouldn't say that I'm like this crazy connoisseur or anything, but like, you know, I know enough. But yeah, there's something about snub nose. I, I don't know if it's the the round, maybe it's accessible or it's easy to use. Is it easy to conceal? Yeah, it's small. It's easy to conceal uh-huh. and it's also it's also easy to shoot a, a revolver on like a semi-automatic handgun, you know, like okay. some people don't know how it works. I see. So when it came to motive, the police were baffled. Who would want to kill a 77-year-old woman? They were able to determine that her purse was missing from the house and crime scene. Okay. And Kay informed the detective that her mother was always known to carry a lot of cash around with her. Yeah, I feel like, is it is it bad to just say, like, I think older people do? It's a, it's an old school thing yeah. to carry cash. Which, which, I mean, hey, listen, I, I agree. You have to have cash, but I'm always limiting the amount. But for me, it's because I work in the city. You never know what could happen. Well, this really turned into a John the, the thing. The city is a dangerous place. Yeah. The city so, is. I say that to you every morning. You do. As a joke. You, as a joke before, as John's leaving for work, I go, watch out. The city's a dangerous place. Yeah. I usually <laughs> keep about $100 cash. Yeah. And then I have all my other stuff. And I think yeah. that that's just the better thing to do. Well, you have to think. Catherine Miller, 77 years old. It's the early 90s. She was a child of the Great Depression. So she's kind of like, you know, cash is king. And that is a really old school thing to do, but she's known to carry a lot of cash. So they were thinking like, okay, maybe this was a robbery after all. So they fingerprinted the whole house and eventually they're going to find out that the fingerprints in the home belonged to no one else but Kay and Catherine and Jason. So had someone seen her with all that cash like say after work she stopped at a store and when she's paying someone she takes out all of her cash pays them what she needs to puts it back and then somebody follows her home and wearing gloves they just kind of force their way into her house just because she opened the door doesn't necessarily mean she knows them someone could have just knocked on her door i mean it is the it's the 90s so we're not all terrified of the person who's knocking at our door and We don't just get deliveries dropped at our doorstep. I mean, everyone answered their door back then. So she could have just answered her door and then somebody forced their way in. Yeah, I mean, I think that that could be a possibility. I mean, I think that imagine the doorbell rings and then you answer it and then there's just a person that you do not know with a gun pointed at you and they want in. You let them in. What if that happens? Right. And that would make sense that the storm door was open and she let them in. And that's why it doesn't look like it's forced entry. Also, the alarm has been disabled most likely because once she was they... home. Well, yeah, not only that, but even if... Well, some people do arm it once they're home. That's true. But I think that the reason why it wasn't was because 
whoever forced their way in with a gun, let's say, once they went in the threshold of the house, whoever was holding her up said, you know, turn it off. Yeah, they made her disarm the system. And it was disabled system. via code. Yeah. And then that's that's why it looks like it really wasn't, nothing was really broken into, per that's, se. That's a possibility. You know? So just a side note here. Um, some of Catherine's credit cards, an insurance card, an AARP card, a blood type card had all been found by a landscaping crew on the side of a road that they'd been working on. And these all came back as belonging to Catherine Miller, obviously. And what it looked like was that someone had thrown them out of a moving vehicle. And then, you know, just a few hours later, her wallet was found blocks away from where the cards were found. And the wallet was missing cash. That's so sad. Yeah. Look at her little AARP card. I know. I'm, her I'm, blood I'm not, type card. Yeah. She's a blood donor. She's a blood donor. Like, oh. I, I am not making fun. I'm saying this poor woman. I know. And it's so sad. Don't don't do that. It's ter- terrible. What a defenseless hell? woman. Yeah. They terrified her. So all of the found items had been wiped clean and no latent evidence was found on any of them. And Kay was truly distraught. She had thought that having her boyfriend go completely dark on her was the worst thing that could have happened to her that holiday season. But now she'd lost her mother and she had a deep pain in her heart. Her mother was her closest confidant and her son Jason loved her. So the two of them were really struggling to um, come to terms with what had happened because it was a senseless act of violence. After the initial stages of collecting evidence had been completed and the family had laid Catherine to rest, the detectives began asking the really hard questions. They had learned that Catherine did not have a very big social life, and really she only entertained family at home. So the detectives asked for a list of people that had been to Catherine's home over the last several weeks. They also asked the family if they knew anyone who would do something like this because it was more likely than not that Catherine had let her killer into the home because home invasions weren't really a big thing that took place in Rowan County. So they really think more likely than not she knew the person she let in. Okay. But the family could think of no one that would have wanted to hurt her. But just a day after that meeting, the detective came back to Kay with some more questions. They saw that she put someone on the list that had been flagged pretty heavily. Okay. Victor Gunnarsson. Oh, so, okay, so maybe he was there with her to visit her mother. Yes. Ooh. So, let's, yeah, she introduced her mother to Victor. That's why he had gone to the house. He'd actually met her a few times. Well, that's alarming. His yeah. name's being flagged. Why? Well, let's get in to who Gunnarsson was and why he had been flagged by the detectives working the case. Gunnarsson, as I said earlier, had come to the United States to seek political asylum because he was a right-wing Swedish extremist who was a suspect in the 1986 assassination of the Prime Minister, Olaf Palme. That's a pretty big deal. That's a huge deal. This yeah. assassination was a massive, massive deal. 
That's crazy. You know what? Well, they made you know, a Netflix series about I don't it. E- you know, I don't even know about it. I have. I don't really know much about Well, thank God I'm here. Yeah, right? Please yeah. enlighten me more. <laughs> well, Gunnarsson was quickly listed as one of the potential suspects in the shooting of the prime minister because of his association with right-winged political groups, such as the European Workers' Party and the Swedish branch of the La Roche movement, which is like we could go down a spiral down that hole for a long time, but we won't. Um, and he himself, meaning Victor, had been very vocal in the anti-Palme movement. And I know you're still a little curious here. I am. So I'm going to explain it briefly. But I could go down a rabbit hole, a very deep rabbit hole, because this assassination could be a podcast in and of itself, because there was a lot of suspects. Technically, it's still unsolved. There's a lot of stuff that went down with the assassination aspect of it. There's a lot of uh, shady stuff surrounding the La Roche movement and especially the European Workers' Party, as you can imagine. Um, but I'll get into it a little bit. Like, we will do a, a shallow rabbit's hole, if you will. Okay. Palme was a polarizing figure, as many politicians are. He led the Swedish Democratic Party from 1969 until his death in 1986, and he served as the prime minister under the Bernadotte royal family from 1969 through 1976. And then he was elected again in 1982 until his assassination in 1986, four years later. And this, of course, is during the age of the Cold War where countries were aligning themselves with either the United States or the Soviet Union. However, Palme was steadfast in his non-alignment policy, which means what you think it does. It means that he didn't want Sweden to align itself with either superpower because he condemned the actions of both countries. Okay, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, not to go so much into history here, but... what. I thought that's kind of still the way it is today. I thought they were very isol- like isolated. I think you're thinking of Switzerland, my love. That is what I'm thinking about. You are. Okay. All right. Well, I got it it's wrong. It's okay. Both S's. We but, get it. But at least I know that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was good. That. Yes. Good job. I, you know how I always you know how I always remember that. <laughs> yeah. Um, the mountains. Yes, because the mountains are their natural right. border, which allow right. them to remain neutral. Yes. In conflict. And that's how I always remember that. I like that. Yeah. Um, I have to say that this is a very, very interesting time period in history. And it's it's something that, unfortunately, because we have so much curriculum in history to, to kind of like sift through, that we don't often get to this time period. But it's something that I feel is really important for the students to know about. But that's kind of where you get this term third world country from because you had the democracies like the United States and the Soviet Union and the Cold War was a time when they were trying to either convince third world countries to take on their policies or beliefs or forcing them to. So Palme was very vocal about the fact that he didn't like and he felt like both superpowers were preying upon the weakness of third world countries. 
That's pretty interesting, actually. Yes. Because some people would argue or be with that statement. Oh, yes. Yeah. I think it's it's kind of like a – seems like a common sense feeling or standpoint. But it was very isolating to Sweden because at the time, everyone was in panic mode. And that's really what the Cold War was. So to say that you weren't going to be on the side of democracy um, – the America and those who supported America felt like you were choosing. I that see. meant you were choosing communism. Gotcha. Or authoritarian governments. But in reality, Paul May was very vocal about not being a supporter to any imperialistic nations or authoritarian governments. And another thing that made America not so happy was the fact that he did not agree with American involvement in Vietnam. Okay. And there was actually a freeze between the United States and Swedish relations for over a year when he compared the American bombing of Hanoi to other horrific events in history. And just to do like a quick, because this was a really big deal that he said this is kind of like one of the things he's known for. I don't know if me knowing that is just because I'm American, so I remember remember reading about this a lot but um the bombing of hanoi was also known as the christmas bombings or operation linebacker 2 and it was when the united states troops bombed north vietnam from december 18th until december 29th of 1972 and as you know that's towards the ending of the war in vietnam now nixon had okayed the order to intimidate the north vietnamese officials after they rejected a proposal during um, what the United States and South Vietnam officials believed were peace talks. Um, they thought they had worked something out. And then when the officials from North Vietnam came and said, no, they like put a nix on it. That was something that was um, offensive to the United States. And they said, well, if you're not going to come to the table, this is, it was basically done in retaliation okay. to uh, failed peace talks. So the bombings were devastating. Um, but they became a morale boost for South Vietnam and American troops. But that was at the expense of 34 Americans that were killed in action and another 49 that were taken prisoner. But the real devastation of the Christmas bombings were the 1,642 civilian deaths. Yeah, it's always bad when there are civilian casualties. Yes. It's never good. And Paul May compared the American act to um, some pretty horrific things in history. And he was very specific about those things. So he said the American bombing of Hanoi was very similar to like what happened at Ordor Sarglen, which is after the D-Day invasion, French residents of a small town in France who... This town obviously was occupied by Nazi forces. Because they heard of the D-Day invasion, they chose to kind of rise up against the Nazis that were located in the town. And in response, the SS officers slaughtered over 600 men, women, and children. That's really sad. That was terrible. So he compared it to that. And he also compared it to Babin Yar, which is one of the largest mass murder sites carried out by the Nazi regime surpassed only by Odessa later on. Um, and that is actually something that was more recently in the news because it was um, involved in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine because it's located in Ukraine and it had been 
you know, hit by Russian forces. So that was seen as a sign of massive disrespect. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then he also compared it to Katyn, which is a mass execution of the Polish by the Soviets. And he compared it to the Holocaust in general, like the, the murders at Treblinka. Wow. So, of course, you're taking this is prime time Cold War America through and through, you know, like that under God added to the Pledge of Allegiance kind of thing. And Americans are like, what? You're saying we're like the Nazis? I mean, it's a bold statement. Yes. Um, You're saying we're like the Soviets? Yeah. So it was kind of blown up into this um, foreign relations nightmare, and it led to a freeze between American and Swedish politics. Well, after all that, I could see how that would happen. Yes. (laughs) Right? Yes. And... It didn't bode well with the United States. And it also didn't bode well with both liberals and conservatives in Sweden because they felt like Palme's aggressive foreign policy opinions and the way that he expressed them were not going to be beneficial for Sweden in the long run. Which makes sense. You're When you're a polarizing figure, you are going to get opposition. And, you know, I'm not saying that in any way I have a complete understanding of Swedish politics in the 1970s and 80s, but there was a lot of opposition to him. Um, As you can imagine, he also, you know, the Democratic Party in Sweden had control for a very long period of time. So I think when that happens, there's always going to be oppositional issues because the other side feels underrepresented. So he was very... outspoken about his denouncement also of oppressive governments like Francisco Franco in Spain. He called the Franco regime a bunch of goddamn murderers, which he was very, very, very right about. And he also stood up against apartheid in South Africa. He has a lot to say and a lot of them make sense. And um, it just, it wasn't met necessarily with a lot of support because at the time, it's so easy to look back at history with the present day lens and say that was the right thing to say or the right thing to do because what they say is true. Hindsight is twenty twenty, um, but it did cause a lot of just foreign relation issues, and because of that and all the pushback that he was getting, from what I can understand, was that people weren't necessarily happy with his aggressive debate style and it didn't sit well with the Scandinavian population. Like they kind of want it to just not be controversial is what I can understand. Yeah. They want to be off the radar kind of deal, especially during such a heightened time in history. That's understandable. Um, However, Paul may did make strides within his own country, but where there is a two party system, there will always be opposition And because of his outspokenness, Palme became a target for extreme right-wing groups. And Gunnarsson was a part of one of those groups. Okay. And that's how we're tying him back into this. Okay. After the leader had been assassinated on the 28th of February, 1986, his wife had also been with him, but she had not died in the assassination attempt. Gunnarsson was taken in for questioning on March 8th and 12th. 
Thinking they had enough evidence against him, the prosecutor had Gunnarsson arrested on the 17th. And that's why the people of Sweden know him so well, because he was the first suspect in this assassination. The evidence that they had was that he was a part of the EWP and he had pamphlets in his apartment, which featured a lot of anti-Palme rhetoric. And he had been kicked out of the LaRoche movement, which is a difficult thing to do. Um, He was known to be very radical. And there was an eyewitness that said they had seen him there at the assassination site. So now I'm guessing somehow he found his way to the United States. Well, after the arrest, the eyewitness had been discredited. Okay. And the investigation was kind of headed in a different direction. Gunnarsson, who had been referred to in all the Swedish papers at the time as the 33-year-old, like all the suspects of the assassination kind of got these nicknames, um, he was released. And it was later proven, like, they think they arrested the person that did it. He was ID'd by Palme's wife. He went to prison, but then he won an appeal. And he got out of prison. Then they think two other people did it. Um, The man who wrote the girl with the dragon tattoo. That meant he was very invested in this assassination. He believed the murder had more to do with his um, stance against apartheid in South Africa. Like this whole assassination goes these crazy various different directions. So Victor Gunnarsson is very much proven innocent. Like he was a suspect early on, but it definitely wasn't him. It was just kind of like that initial let's grab somebody who's very vocal against him kind of thing. And the problem for Gunnarsson was that he said for years he tried to live in Sweden, but that that was really difficult for him because he was always known as the man who was suspected of the assassination of Palme. Well, if he had nothing to do with it, let's say, that would be a very hard thing to deal with if everyone around you thinks that you were the one who assassinated the their leader of the country. Exactly. I mean, that would be pretty insane. It'd be hard to deal with. Yeah. And, of course, the United States, because, remember, the United States wasn't too fond of what was said about them. You know, most people don't like being compared to the Nazis or the Soviet Union regime under Stalin. So they said, we'll take you. Come on over. Now, was that their way of like, a, like a, almost like a slap in their face for no. taking him? Like, what was the reason? No, for it was. It? I mean, he wanted to immigrate to the United States. OK. And he just checked that he was doing so to seek political asylum. So it was just a way for him to say why he was in the United States. OK. It wasn't necessarily like, oh, we'll take you because we didn't like him. It wasn't like that. Gotcha. OK. But they just didn't give him a hard time. Well, thank you for the history well, lesson. Well, yeah, I feel like that was like a crazy history lesson. <laughs> but I can there. see why it could be its own podcast. <laughs> oh, my God. And it could get so much deeper. I mean, that's just me scratching the surface. And again, I am not a expert on Scandinavian political history. So if I got anything wrong, you please let me know. Because it was really difficult trying to 
look into the politics of a country that you're just not familiar with, you know? So yeah. school me if you need to. I'm always here for it. A teacher's job is to always be a student. You're constantly learning. Yes. <laughs> so now Gun- that's why Gunnarsson was in the United States. And as you can imagine, when the detectives are investigating the death of Catherine Miller, learning that the daughter's new boyfriend is a suspected political assassin, an assassin who would have shot the prime minister at close range a gun. What better gun than a snub those 38? Right. I yep. mean, they're like, do we have something here? Is this like, and it may not be political at all. They, they weren't working off this like massive conspiracy theory. Just the fact that this man had been suspected of using a gun to solve a problem before. And if he had done it, wouldn't that have just reinforced the fact that he could get away with doing it? I think so, but we also have to try to understand, like, if now that we know who she was dating, my first thing that I would try to do is say, okay, what is what is the like what is the means to an end here for this guy? He's coming here seeking political asylum. He meets his chick, they date, and then you know he's being maybe possibly suspected with killing uh, his date's uh, mother. Right. And taking some money out of her out of her purse. I would be thinking for what reason and what is he trying to do here? Well, could it be that maybe people were after him and he needed a quick getaway? Yeah, I I, I don't know actually. I have no clue at all, but I think that's somewhere something that we need to explore. Why would he want to commit murder to take money out of an old lady's house? Right. Well, what's going on? Does he owe somebody money? Is he like you said? Is he trying to get away? Like, yeah. Is he even a real suspect? Like, w- well, they think <laughs> what's really weird is that he's disappeared. So the fact that he disappeared and now Catherine Miller is dead and he was suspected of being an assassin, they're like, well, that's awfully convenient that he's just gone and can't be questioned. I mean, it is because most people just don't become literal ghosts and you can't find them. Exactly. Unless something happens to them or they leave the country. True. Which money would buy you a ticket out of the country. It would. So detectives really sat Kay down and asked her if she thought that this was something that Victor could have done and whether or not she really knew him. Kay said that she did and that Victor had opened up to her about his past and she knew that he was not capable of the violence that her mother had gone through. Plus, there was something else that she had to share with them. She'd been receiving letters. Even before the death of her mother, she was getting some pretty scary mail and she was trying to ignore them. She hoped the letters would go away. But now that her mother had been murdered, she was thinking twice about them. What were in those letters? While at her home, Kay showed the letters that she'd received to the detectives. One read, Roses are red, violets are blue. We're going to kill Jason and your whole house too. Another letter read, Mrs. Whedon, we wanted to send you a warning that something is going to happen to Jason soon. He is going to get hurt real bad. Jason won't know when or where, but it will be very soon. 
She said that she'd been so scared that she had reached out to a friend that was in law enforcement, and he agreed to sleep in his car outside of her home because her and Jason were so terrified and they wanted to get some sleep. And what had really terrified them was after receiving one of these letters, because I mean, I'm just reading two of them to you, but they were all like along the same lines. She found that her car had been vandalized. So someone was harassing her. So this friend decided like, okay, I'll sleep outside the house. So you just feel like someone's kind of watching. And shortly after that night, she received a letter that read, while you have someone watching your house, we are watching it too. This is like another watcher. Right. Don't worry. We will be back. We saw people last time watching your house, but they can't watch it forever. We will get Jason very soon. He knows what we want and he better pay up. He knows that he knows what this is all about. And that letter had been sent on May 17th, 1993. So this is well before not just the murder of Catherine Miller, but way before Kay even met Victor Gunnarsson. This is before. Yeah, because that's May and she doesn't meet him until like late October. And how old is Jason? He's he, in high school, he's right? He's in high school. Mm-hmm. So my, <laughs> we got to ask him what's going on here. Hey, do you know what these letters are, are talking yes. about? Um, well, Jason, who was in high school, told, told the detectives, just as he had told his mother so many times before, that he had no idea what those letters were in reference to because he wasn't involved in anything like that. Um, he played sports, did well in school. He wasn't some a kid that got into trouble. He said he really didn't know. And that especially now that his grandmother passed away, if there was something he knew, he would be sharing it, but he just has no idea. In the letters, did it say that I'm watching you or we're watching you? Keep saying we. We're like, we are watching you. Yes. I mean, it is kind of interesting when people write things down a certain way because that could possibly give a clue i know it's kind of blatant out in the open there it doesn't take a scientist to figure that I know out you're but saying the language is important the language is important because is it somebody like for example is it somebody who maybe isn't from this country maybe that might speak a different way or write it a certain way i see what you're saying or you know is it someone that is younger that might so, talk a certain so way potentially this could be like Victor was introduced to her on purpose. Are you saying that could maybe be a thing? I'm thinking that there's a connection somewhere here. Okay. I don't know. It's hard to say if Victor's involved or not, right? It is. But I think that if we're saying we are watching, there's obviously more than one. There could be, right? Right. Or they're just saying that to throw us off. I don't know. But I don't know. I just think if the kid has no idea, if Jason has no idea what is being asked of him or what this involvement is, then they're all left in the dark here. They are. And he wants to help, but he can't. And it's also really difficult to, like, figure anything out from the letters because the letters were typed up using a typewriter. And they had no fingerprints on them except K's and Jason's. Don't you find that odd? Yeah. Well, they must have handled it with gloves. No, but do you find it odd that it was typed and not written? No, because I think this person may feel like their handwriting might give it away. Right. Because why are they thinking that? 
because you would need a is it a linguist expert like, what is the one that like does the not a, a handwriting expert. a handwriting expert whatever yeah. it is i don't know guys anyway. you are you're doing but a handwriting expert maybe that might help and maybe that's why it was typed right that's 100 percent right, why to look it was for typed. inconsistencies yeah. or, or or i don't know yeah well another scary thing was that there was no postage on the letters they had been delivered to the mailbox like like the person who typed it and put it in the envelope put it in the mailbox every single time every time that's scary that meant that they were really close and the threats were real and now it was scary because not her car had been vandalized you could write that off to maybe just a coincidence but her mother had just been murdered now and one last thing about this before we learn new things what are the odds that both mother and daughter live in the same neighborhood because the reason why I think that it's weird is because that person must know that neighborhood well enough to know that they're both within the neighborhood Correct. which means that it has to be somebody that has visited both residents before okay so you're saying it's someone in their circle it has to be yeah so this is an odd addition to the case a mysterious person or group of people sending letters threatening Kay and her son Jason it was very bizarre, and they wondered why she had not said something earlier. At the same time, the Salisbury Police Department contacted the sheriff's detectives to let them know that the man that they had wanted to talk to, the man they requested information about, Victor Gunnarsson, well, he'd been reported missing by the assistant manager of his apartment complex. So Gunnarsson's missing. He had not been home or paid his rent in a few weeks. So when they went to go check on him in his apartment, they found his front door to be unlocked. And in the parking lot, they found his car, but they said that it was parked at a very odd angle. So it just looked like there was foul play involved and he just was not there, but all of his belongings were still there. Yeah. Wow. This this seems very deep. This is not a normal K presenting this case, I feel like. I feel like there's way more here than normal. This is very interesting, right? I, th- I think that we're trying to figure out something super multi-layered here. John, I have to do this because you <laughs> friggin' figure it out every time. Well, and I need to bring you harder things. So you're trying to squash me like a bug. I am. All right. Well, I'm going to let you continue the story because honestly, I'm, I'm at what's end here. I have no idea. So at this point, the detectives were thinking about Kay. She was the connection between Victor and Catherine. So could she have anything to do with it? They went back to her and began to ask her questions about the murder of her mother and where she had been that night. She got the hint right away that they were trying to insinuate that she had something to do with the murder, and she got angry with them. She told them that she loved her mother with all of her heart and that she would have never done anything to hurt her. Then they asked her about Gunnarsson being reported missing. It was clear that she had no clue that the man had been reported missing at all. She told detectives that she thought he'd stopped talking to her because he didn't like her. And honestly, after her mother was murdered, she really kind of stopped thinking about him because the last thing on her mind was a boyfriend that just stopped answering her calls after six weeks. And she did tell them, though, 
that while she was kind of like after the death of her mother, she'd received a call from one of Victor's friends that had been visiting the United States from Sweden that she that he had introduced her to. His name was Daniel. Well, once Daniel got home, he called Kay and said, I'm back in Sweden, but have you heard from Victor? And Kay was like in the middle of her mourning process. And she said, you know what? No, I haven't heard from him. I'm sorry. If you if you get in touch with him, tell him to call me. That's what she said. So she said she did remember the fact that Daniel said he hadn't even heard from Victor, but she just really wasn't in the right state of mind to be thinking about any of that. But now that they're asking her about it, this information is kind of coming to her and she's saying, you know what, maybe that is what happened. Maybe he went missing and that's why he stopped talking to me. I mean, that is kind of what your mind gravitates towards. I mean, if this person was so involved, like so happy to get to know you and everything was looking up and then all of a sudden he's gone. Right. I mean, it doesn't, you know, there's not that many options here that what could happen. Either something happened to him or he's the reason, like he did something wrong to leave. Right. So it's one or the other. Either something bad happened to him or he left town. Or country, or however, whatever. Yeah, no, it's a potentiality too. Because I'm sorry, um, no one's gonna do what maybe people are suspect suspecting him of of killing this old woman to leave with maybe five hundred dollars, let's just say, and and leave after that. Unless he Completely. is a cold blooded assassin. Know. I don't know. I don't know, but the apartment's weird. The car parked is weird, and the fact that he hasn't had contact with anybody also weird. Yeah. Well, now they're still thinking that Kay might be involved in this. So what they wanted to do was learn more about her from an uninvolved party. So the detectives went to go to speak with Kay's police officer friend. And this is a man named Elsie Underwood, who um, it also turned out that they had dated for a while. He was the one that she was engaged to, but the two of them broke off the engagement. And um, they had someone go question him. Now, he was working um, as a police officer in a school. So they asked another officer that had worked with him in the past that knew him. They said, would you mind going over to his house and kind of asking him questions about his ex-girlfriend? You know him, so he'll be more comfortable talking to you. Okay, that sounds fair. So... Um, first he said to, and this is kind of like, you know, like a former colleague, a friend. So it was a very relaxed, formal conversation. And Elsie said, you know, like me and Kay, we still love each other. We talk all the time. We're really good friends, but it just didn't work out because the two of us kind of like butted heads all the time. So that's why we kind of called it quits. And the officer then asked Elsie about the letters and he said he had seen them. And there were a few nights when Kay had been so scared that she said she couldn't sleep. So he agreed to kind of be outside and watch the house for her and Jason. He also said that he believed the letters to be true. That if you ask him, Kay was a little too easy on her son, Jason. That she let him get away with too much. He accused Kay of allowing Jason to drink in the house. And he said that she knew that her son had a problem with drugs. 
In fact, not only did he have a problem with drugs, he owed money to a lot of drug dealers in the area. And who's saying this? Elsie. And Elsie was used to date. Yeah, they, his her former fiance. Okay, so and someone that spent time in the house. And he's a cop. Yes. And I know you might not know this. I don't know, but has he been on the force a long time? Um, a few decades, but he became a cop a little bit later in life. Like it okay. wasn't like an early career. Okay. And he said that he witnessed Kay finding Jason's drugs, and she got mad at him and flushed them down the toilet. So the officer went on to ask Elsie about his relationship with Catherine. Like, what did he know about her? And he said, even though like me and Kay had a bit of like a bad ending to our relationship, I always got along really well with Catherine and he still would do favors for her. So like Catherine would ask him to come fix something or do some yard work and he would go do it for her. So when asked what he meant by tumultuous, because that's how he described you know, his relationship with Kay, he said they would always fight. And the officer kind of knew what he meant by that because he'd known Elsie had had a bit of a temper. And Elsie admitted that once um, he had seen Kay out, and this is after their breakup, he'd seen her out on a date with another man. And he got angry and him and Kay were kind of exchanging words. And he ended up pouring a drink over her head. Okay, that's not good. Not kind of weird, like violent tendency kind of thing. If you're going to do that in public, yeah, what are you doing behind closed doors? It's not violent, but it's definitely like you're crossing a line that should not be crossed. Now, is he so he's being asked all these things by another police officer, another colleague, Uh, another, a former colleague, another police officer. Now, is he a police officer in the town, Elsie? I mean, is he a police officer in the town where all this took place? In Salisbury, yes. Okay. But he's technically not, like, it's very interesting. Like, he's kind of like an auxiliary officer that's like the school police officer. So he's not like a police officer patrolling the the town. Right, okay. Yes. Okay. Now, the other officer thought that that was odd, but he kept the questioning going. And before the officer left, Elsie asked him if it would be okay if he still, like, reached out to Kay because they still talked. They were still friends. So he was kind of like, do you want me to keep this a secret? Like, are you looking into her or do you mind if I tell her? And the officer said, no, no, you can tell her. We're just, you know, we're doing the investigation. So whatever. And they were going to have to ask Kay about this anyway. The officer knew because the detectives then after learning everything the officer knew from LC, they were like, did you lie to us? Do you know that Jason has a problem with drugs? He owes money to drug dealers. Wouldn't that make the letters make sense? Could they have robbed Catherine to get their money? I mean, yeah, right. If he's not paying them, then, you know, that would be a good thing. But I don't like are you tr- like, OK, murdering, murdering somebody who uh, murdering someone's grandmother who owes you money would be a clear indication that you're next if you don't pay up. Like yeah. A scare tactic kind of thing. Well, maybe it was, we're sending you these letters, you're still not paying us, we'll show you what we mean. Yeah, yeah, I know you're 100% right. It could be. It could be. Um, In 1990, this is 93, right? Correct, yeah. I always always forget these things. But are are there ballistics? Like, are there, like, we could do ballistics, right? Yes. DNA's in its infancy, but they could still 
work on it. And fingerprinting. Uh, well, fingerprinting, definitely. You know. It's very interesting. And then where does I, Victor fit into this whole situation? I don't know. I don't know. But I, but I I'm think. I'm so ha- <sighs> Let me just bask in this right now. John doesn't know. Well, don't bask in it for too long. <laughs> because I'm going to tell you right now. I, okay. I, I'm on to something here. All right. I'm well, can something. you let me. Absolutely. I need to know more to really gather on. an idea here. Okay, okay. I'm building. I'm building. You build. build you know, things that are. Amazing. Take time. You're right. You're so, right. Masterpieces take I'm time. I'm just joking, but good. <laughs> so, after hearing the information that Elsie had to offer, the detectives went to speak to Kay about this. You know, like, they want to know what's the truth. Kay completely denies everything. She certainly didn't allow Jason to drink in the house. And she said that she herself does not even drink alcohol. And there was never alcohol in the house. So she didn't know what Elsie was referring to. She denied ever finding or flushing drugs down the toilet. And, you know, she said, of course, I'm going to because Elsie had kind of said to the officer, like, Kay's too good to her son and she said to the officers of course I'm going to be good to my son over my boyfriend or my fiance or my husband that's you know like that's my son he's the jealous type yes a little weird a little weird so she said that everything Elsie was saying was like really not true and it was really just because he had a bad temper he hadn't been happy with the way they ended their relationship And to the detectives, like, Kay's account seemed to just give them more questions. Like, who's telling the truth? Because at the end of the day, it would also make sense for a mother to lie for her son. Because if Jason is the cause of this and he is involved in drugs and drug dealers and and murders and, like, he's somehow involved in the reasoning why, she would protect him. I agree with you, right? I'm just thinking right now, though, he's a high school kid that has shown you, as a mother, no reason for concern. If there was any kind of... No, but she might be lying about it is what they think. Mm. I don't know. I, I You know what, what? What kind of foils that whole thing is that's all fine and great. Even if this kid is on drugs, selling drugs, mixed with the wrong people, whatever... How does Victor play into that? And how does Victor well, going missing? Well, could that be a coincidence? Well, maybe. Because they'd really only known him for six weeks. No, I know. It is a very short amount of time. I'm just saying, though, if we're going on the the theory that maybe Victor had involvement, right. how does Jason, knowing the wrong people or drugs, play into, that. play into that? Could Victor have maybe been at Catherine's house asking her... A question about Kay. Could he have been in the wrong place at the wrong time when they were at the house dropping the letter off? Maybe. But I I I just don't know how there's like all these like scattered things everywhere. I don't know. I just think that she asked Kay asked LC to watch over the house that night, correct? Right. When they were getting threats. Right. And this like is the like letters. from way back. Yeah. So. In the summer. 
I just think that like some of this, some of this is a little alarming. You have a guy that right. literally poured a drink over your head, who you've had a relationship with that went sour. He seems a little jealous of the way that the girl he used to be with is with her son. Like, yeah. you know, being too, like, so almost like there's a jealousy forming there. Okay. So if there's a jealousy forming there, I wouldn't, what stops, what stops me to believe that he's not jealous if he starts to see another guy coming over that for makes six sense. weeks? But then why would her mother be murdered? Well, I think that all plays back to the whole thing I mentioned in the beginning where something looks a little staged and sometimes people don't do a good job at staging shit, do they? No. But why would he want the mother murdered if if she likes him? I don't know that part yet. I'm just saying that okay. jealousy makes people do some crazy okay. things. And and you and would need to cover up your tracks pretty well if you are responsible for someone's disappearance. Correct. And sometimes people who are able to like who know how things work do a lot of that kind of thing. So staging a scene, killing somebody who... Like uh, you said earlier, the police officer, like you mentioned Right, that. and I did mention that. It's yeah. possible that we are dealing with maybe him or somebody maybe he knows right. that is responsible for this whole entire thing. Think about it. The letter. Let's say, let's, let's just incorporate the murder for now. The murder. Okay. The stage of that house during the murder. Okay. The wallet. Okay. And, and all the credit cards and stuff. Let's say he did, let's see Elsie did kill Victor or make Victor disappear. Now, I want to just, can I mention something yeah, that sure. you don't know yet? Sure. Victor's a big guy, over six feet tall, like just over 190. Like he's a pretty, he would be hard to handle. I and would, Elsie's yeah. a lot smaller than him. I would say that's great and all, but unfortunately, a gun is a game changer. No, I know. I'm just letting yeah. you know. I mean, so I'm just thinking, think about this. If he goes, he makes this person disappear and then leaves no trace of him at his own apartment. His car is put in a different location. So I don't know. I, there's a lot of things here that makes me think that is it possible that we're dealing with somebody who is in law enforcement that did this? Okay, maybe. That's my big hint here. And I think that just before we continue, I just want to say one more thing is that um, I think that Kay keeps reaching out to Elsie, even though they did have like kind of a tumultuous relationship, yeah. is that she found comfort in him because she felt like she was reaching out to the police and they weren't really caring. I mean, this is the early 90s. The whole stalking harassment thing was very low on the totem pole when it came to things to respond to. And I think she wanted to seek comfort again. And okay. the fact that he had law enforcement training made her feel comfortable, almost like she had this kind of like private police officer. Yeah, the, like uh, just a phone call away. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree so with I you. I know why that, she kept him around. But. Yeah, I think that that was like kind of like trumping the fact that they had a bad relationship. Yeah, yeah. Well, some answers would be had a month after her mother's murder. When Kay received a phone call from the Watuga County Sheriff's Department on January 7, 1994, deep in the Blue Ridge Mountains, about 100 miles away, a body had been found in the snow. Another body. Uh, all, all the time. Bodies everywhere. In an isolated and peaceful stretch of road on the Blue Ridge Parkway, a land surveyor had come across a human body. The man's bare feet were exposed, and the rest of his body had been covered 
by snowdrifts from the howling winds. He was a large man, over six feet tall, by the look of his white silhouette between the trees. The man called it in, and within an hour, the site was established as a crime scene full of investigators. It was clear the body had been there for some time. No tracks could be found or analyzed because whatever had been left behind was now buried in the snow, the same as their victim. Before anything was done to the snow, the area was sketched, measured, and photographed. And that was when they carefully began to brush the man off. What was revealed was a completely naked man. It was obvious that parts of his body had been eaten or chewed by various small animals in the area. It was also very obvious, aside from the fact that he was completely naked in freezing temperatures, that this man had been murdered. He had two gunshot wounds, one to his left temple and the other to the right side of his neck. As the scene was processed, they wanted to get right into the investigation. The only problem was that they had no clue who their victim was. So the sheriff's detectives sent an ID of their victim to all other counties in North Carolina and neighboring states because why not try everywhere? Well, they got a call shortly thereafter from Rowan County. There was a man from Salisbury that had been missing that matched their ID. And when they faxed over a picture, the detectives in Watuga knew that that was their guy, Victor Gunnarsson. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. Now, hold on a minute. Now, this is a different county, right? Yeah, 100 miles away. Okay. Well, that's interesting. That, I mean, that That's a big deal because now we're talking about jurisdictions now. Yes. We're talking about... Now okay. there's two counties involved, Rowan Correct. County and Watuga County and the Salisbury Police. And that makes things complicated. Very much so. Not always. But sometimes. Well, not in this case. And I'll talk about it a little bit later. Okay. But the two counties work very well together. Oh, well, that's great. Yeah. I can't believe it, though. This is a second body now. Yep. Both and with two gunshots. And that's where Victor is. Interesting, right? <sighs> now, how'd he get there? Because his car, you said his car was parked somewhere else. Yep. His uh, car is back at his apartment complex. So how did some... How, that means that somebody had to be naked. off the radar to put a body in a car and drive 100 miles away without even being suspected of anything. I always think to myself, sometimes uh, you got those random cases when someone's headlights out and they get pulled over. And, right. You know, but this one. It is ha- always weird things. Like, that's a gamble. I feel like that is to travel with a body in a car to dispose. Wait. Ooh. I'm going to share something with our listeners that I please don't think I'm crazy, guys. We kind of already do, but okay, continue. Remember, there were a few times mm-hmm. when I was, we were driving to my mom's house in North Carolina, and what did I say to you a, about a body? I, I, I was like, recall. oh man, we could just throw a body out of the car right now and no one would find it for a long time. Oh yeah, that's right. I do you recall that. that. I try to pre- I try to pretend that that isn't being said to me <laughs> because, you know, okay, you, you could be a little weird sometimes. But it's but true. I, love I was like, this is the perfect place to just hide. Like how many times driving were we completely, completely alone? 
I mean, that's true for for Miles, right? Yeah. Well, this is also the same person, guys. That I'm I'm, I'm letting all your secrets out. Nice. This is the same person that like every time we pass a cemetery, she goes, "How many people are dead in here?" And she, I'm all like, "All of them." I don't like. I don't know. Okay, I have no idea. She's like, "All of them." I'm just like, "That's not cool." You're I crazy. love that joke. I, yeah, we could tell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Kay is the first person they call because she's listed as his former girlfriend. Okay. And that was like what they had on the information sheet. So they call Kay. Her heart must have sank. I mean, a month before her mother was murdered. Yeah. Now her boyfriend? Now her boyfriend too. It's like all this craziness is just spiraling around her. Around her. People are being murdered all around her. But I'm, you know what? She's being put in the same situation as Victor was on a different scale, though. Think about it. You're your mother, accused. your mother, your boyfriend missing, dead. What? What's wrong with you? What's going on with you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the Watuga Sheriff's Department asked if she could make the trip to ID the body. But also, you know, they want her to answer questions for them because this was their murder investigation because obviously, like you said, the body was found within their jurisdiction. And according to everyone who knew Victor, who they talked to, Kay had been the last one to see him and that had been on their last date. So Kay was initially told that they had information about Victor that they wanted to share with her. She had not known that he'd been found dead. When she got to the station after driving 100 miles, she was informed by the detective working the case that Victor had actually been murdered, shot twice in the head and neck. And Kay was very upset. She explained that things had been going so well between the two of them and that she was so confused when he just stopped calling her. But now she knew why. He'd been murdered. She was upset also for not reporting him missing. She said, like, I just thought he stopped calling me and I thought I was being crazy calling him so many times. And if I would have called the police, that would have made me even more crazy. And then, you know, her mother passed away. So there was she was just dealing with so many other things that she wasn't really thinking of Victor. Yeah, it kind of goes on the back burner. And, like, I don't blame her for not reporting him missing. I mean, just because, I mean, it, I mean, it's six weeks. It's like, for some people, they go through relationships, and it's like it's over it, it, as fast as it started or right. whatever. Six weeks uh, yeah. isn't necessarily a long amount of time. Right. I mean, maybe he just didn't like me, and he didn't want to be with me anymore. Right. I, I mean, I don't hold that against her. And then, of course, as she's explaining this all to the detective, she has to tell the woman about her mother having been murdered only four weeks prior. And she mentioned that she also had been shot in the head. And then Kay asked the detective a question that she just couldn't answer. But why is everyone around me being murdered? I mean, I think that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah, it is almost like a scary setup thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what? I think since we have ballistics, I'm sure they're going to do this. It's not like I'm smarter than them or anything. Um, but they could probably tell if the bullets are the same from um, Victor's body and the mother's body. Because that would mean... They're different. They are different. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting that they're different. I, I, I really do. There is no way 
that this person, he this whoever it is, knows protocol. Okay. I say he. I always say he. But, I know. you know, this person, he knows protocol. He or okay. she knows protocol. So you're leaning towards Elsie. I, I actually am. There's a, there's a long list here. I've been kind of compiling it this whole episode. There is a lot of things here that you would need to know from personal work experience to do. Okay. But, you know, like I can go over it, but I won't right now. But there's a lot. Right. We'll take your word for it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that you... If you no, want. we get it. Yeah, I mean, there really is. There really is. There's a lot here. Uh, you know, jealous ex ex-fiance. that would make a case difficult to investigate is what they're dealing with. Yeah. Right. I think the only way to make sure that he's not involved is, I mean, he might not even be on police radar right now as a suspect. Right. But I think that if we want to rule him out, we do ballistics and we just ask to see, because it's record, his if he weapons. has... What weapons does he have? Because he has his police issue. But what about a secondary firearm? Everybody has one. Most right. cops have a secondary firearm that's personal that they might even have. They'll keep it on a leg strap. They'll keep it in their safe, their house, whatever. So let's know about that. Let's find that out. Okay. Before she left the sheriff's station, Kay was asked if Victor had any connections or friends in that part of North Carolina. Like, is there a reason why he would have been 100 miles away from his apartment? And she told her that he hadn't, that it was really odd to her that he was 100 miles away from his home, that he never said anything about going anywhere else in the state to her. After Kay left, the detectives in Watuga County reached out to the investigators in Rowan County, and they all agreed to work together because the cases seemed to be connected, and that connection seemed to be Kay. And now... There are these letters, the letters that Kay was getting, because they were still coming in. And if it's even possible, they were becoming more sinister. Kay would later describe this time period in her life like a living nightmare. Her boyfriend had gone missing. Her mother had been murdered. Her and her son were being terrorized. And then she found out that her boyfriend had been murdered in the same manner that her mother was but somehow ended up naked 100 miles away. Kay was very nervous for herself and her son because the letters were not slowing down. And rather, it seemed to her that things were escalating. Up until this point, which is mid-January of 1994, the letters had only been threats. But what was being threatened became a reality one night. When Jason was startled awake, he said that he had been awoken by an extremely loud bang. And Kay ran in because she had heard the noise too and the yell from Jason as he like woke up suddenly. He said that it sounded like wood hitting plexiglass really hard, but they didn't have anything like that outside their house. Because of the threats, Kay was nervous that there was an intruder around the house, you know, and the murders, so she called the police. And when an officer checked around the house, he noticed a bullet hole in the siding. What? Someone had shot into Jason's room. Get out of here. No. I will not. So see, it's like these letters are becoming a little bit more... Um, real. Real, yes. Because the threats are targeting. being... Yeah, followed he, up on. Definitely being targeted, I think, a little bit. 
Gotcha. How crazy would it be if another theory that was maybe uh, v- like Victor was killed by like some group from the other country and now they think that they're like that Jason and the mother are like co-conspirators or something well, and they're being attacked? Imagine that. Hold on. Victor, he was ID'd by what he looked like, but they didn't have his DNA to compare him to. So what are you saying? It was like a like a like a a fake death, like a ruse, yeah, like a yeah. like a fake body or something. I don't know, not a fake body. You know what I mean? Like a I'm just fake telling, Victor. telling the story. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, it, I mean, there's a lot of like I said f- before folds here. Like, could this be from the other country that they're like chasing them down or something? I don't know. And well, we, let's get back to the bullet in Jason's. Room. Yes, please. Sorry. So. <laughs> <laughs> So when his room was searched, the actual bullet was found in his dresser. So it had went through the wall into the dresser. But based on the hole in the wall and the trajectory of the bullet, and if the dresser hadn't been there and it had been moved over a foot to the left, Jason would have been shot in the head. That's actually crazy. Yeah. So what the hell was happening to Kay's family? Poor Jason. How's he going to focus on school? I, I was, th- I was actually thinking the same exact thing. Oh, like, like forget this about poor for, boy. forget about Kay for a second. This poor child, literally in his house, getting bullets shot at him. Everyone around him his dying. His grandmother passed away. How yeah. is this kid whole, like staying normal? It's hard. So, if Jason would have been shot, that would have been the third person that Kay loved murdered in the past two and a half months. The bullet was collected by law enforcement, and they told Kay that they would run some tests, but she never heard back from them again, because nothing could be done. There was nothing to compare the bullet to. There was nothing. There was nothing. Someone shot at her house, and police couldn't do anything about it. Nothing came of what was essentially an attempted murder. Yeah, on on the third person that it, that is related or cared about by by her. Kay. And because of that, Kay was really frustrated with the Salisbury Police and the Rowan County Sheriff's Department. She felt that they weren't taking anything seriously. Her mother and her boyfriend had been murdered, and someone just tried to murder her son. And she was getting getting threatening letters about it. So she thought that they should be working a little bit harder or at least trying harder to protect her and Jason from future harm. So it was not something that she was proud of because they did have a really bad relationship, but she reached out to Elsie again. Whenever she needed something or someone, she did often reach out to him despite their tumultuous relationship and his temper. It kind of just is what happens. Sometimes uh, people stay around bad relationships because it's just, it's there, you know? So she figured that maybe he, being a former police officer, would know a little bit more about the investigative side of things and why things hadn't been figured out or done yet. 
because she's thinking, okay, I may be frustrated with the police, but maybe like what's their side of things? That's what she's thinking. And she thought that he could help her with that. So when she talked to Elsie, he asked her if she trusted the head detectives. And she told them that she did, but she just didn't feel as if they were protecting her or Jason enough. She told him that she was so worried because even just that day she had received another letter. And um, he told her that he would come over and take a look at the letter if she wanted him to. Um, so she agreed thinking, you know, like, what could it hurt? The, the police aren't doing anything about it. So when Elsie came over, he had like his whole forensics kit with him. He handled the letter with gloves and he analyzed it with a pair of tweezers in case like maybe he found a hair on the letter. And he told Kay that he couldn't find anything obvious in the letter that would give its author away. And he apologized. He couldn't help more with the letter, but he told her that there were other ways he could help. Like if she wasn't happy with the way things were being handled, that he would be happy to reach out to the detectives to ask more questions, to advocate for her. And she told him that she really appreciated him being there for her. Kay just felt like everything was going crazy. She confided in him that she wasn't eating or sleeping. And she felt like she was just waiting for the next tragedy to happen. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, everything that's happening to her is so tragic, honestly. It's like all she wants is for someone to, you know, the, to love and, and you know, care about her. Right. But, I, I you know, I, I still keep thinking in the back of my mind, are we dealing with someone who's like an arsonist who, like, sets a fire and then goes and watches them put it out? Or, or someone who sets it and then goes and puts it out? Like someone's enjoying torturing her. Torturing her, her right. And watching and it. And making her, like, go through hell. And it's like... How many people out there are willing to do that to just somebody random? Yeah. Which is why I don't think it is somebody random that we don't know. Right. I agree with you. I think that's a really good assessment. And it was around this time that Kay also began receiving harassing phone calls. Oh, so now it's escalated to phone calls now. Yes. Okay. So her her phone was being called incessantly. And on the other end, there would only be heavy breathing. The calls even came in the middle of the night, sometimes at 2 or 3 in the morning. And they were using a number blocker, which you were able to do back in 1993. And Kay told the detectives that she now felt like she was being stalked 24-7. It was all-consuming and relentless. She was terrified to go anywhere and she had even written her will just in case that she was murdered. This is a movie. I know. This isn't even, like, this feels like it can't be real. I, oh my God, it is a lifetime slash crazy blockbuster movie. Yeah. It has everything. It has the drama, the, the murder. The assassin. Everything. The everything. It's yeah. crazy. The, you know, the, the so-called assassin, letters, phone calls. It's like, I know what you did last summer. Like, yeah. I mean, this is insane. It's like the the watcher, but the real version of it. Anyone that says they wouldn't be terrified by this is lying. Yeah. There you would be you would want to leave instantly. Cuz this is someone that has committed murder twice, tried to do it three times. This isn't someone who's just harassing even though that is incredibly scary and intimidating like harassment and stalking, but imagine if that was followed through with murder two and a half times. Yeah, Cuz most of the time it doesn't lead to murder. I feel until like until the end. Until the end. Right. Right. But I mean this is this has escalated so quickly. 
but in different forms. It's almost like once you prepare for one thing, it's over, and then something else that you're not used to happens. Right. You can't even brace yourself for it. No, and that's why she said she's she's literally just waiting for the next tragedy. Yeah. The detectives involved in all of these cases really were doing everything they could. They were just baffled by everything that was going on because there was such a lack of evidence in every crime. And because there was a lack of evidence, they decided to go a different route. The K route, like you said. The connection between everyone and everything is K. And K and Jason are continuing to be harassed. So it must be personal. The letters, the calls, the murders, it was all very personal to her. So they asked her who would ever want to hurt you or had you had falling out with anyone in the past. And she was reluctant to say it because he was helping her so much and being so kind as of then. But the only person she could think of was Elsie. And she was finally honest with the detectives and told them that honestly, Every time something happened, like when she was struggling to open her mother's side door, she thought in the back of her head, this was Elsie. And when she found out Victor was missing, she thought it was Elsie. Like her gut was telling her that it was him, but her brain was convincing her otherwise because he was helping her so much. That's actually mind blowing as a listener of this to hear her say that. Because that was so, like, so much in the beginning where yeah. she might have felt like that that there was involvement. But who better than someone that you were about to marry? You know this man. You know what he's capable or not capable of. And that means that in the back of her mind, she knew that she that he might be capable of murder well, this is or foul play in some sort. how these bad relationships, were, and I don't want to say bad relationships, abusive relationships work where he has convinced her in a way that she needs him and that although her gut is telling her to do one thing, she can't do it. It's like when people say, like, well, why don't you just leave the relationship? You can't, you know? Right. You can't. I mean, they say on average you try to leave an abusive relationship six times before you actually get out of it. And although she had broken up with him, had she broken up with him, he was still very present in her life. Yeah, no, you're right. I really, I mean, I can't speak on the matter. I've no. never been in a situation like that, but it seems really scary. It, and I think that she was scared, but she didn't realize she was scared until that moment when they really said, "Who would do this to you?" And she was like, "Well, he would." It just kind of like it clicked for her. It clicked. Yep. So they asked Kay to break down everything between her and Elsie because they had been wondering about their relationship ever since he'd been interviewed. Um, and like you said, like you thought that interview was kind of weird and off and, and the detectives did too. Yeah, I mean, I think it was because I think it was. <laughs> and that's and remember, this is when Elsie completely threw Jason under the bus. So Kay explained that when she had met Lamont Claxton Underwood, so Elsie, that's why they call him that, um, he had been a police officer in town and everything had been perfect. And you know what's actually really um, funny is as a teacher, like working in a school, most of my colleagues, like a really high percentage of them are married to police officers. Interesting. Teachers and police officers tend to, I guess it's the whole service part of it. Maybe. You know? Yeah. 
So, and I think the initial connection, like when she did meet Elsie, went really deep for Kay because she taught English and drama at West Rowan High School. And Elsie Underwood was assigned to the position of school resource officer at Salisbury High School. So they kind of had that in common where they worked in a high school. And working in a high school is like working in the wild, wild west. Like when you meet someone else that does, no matter what position they hold, it's very like you share your war stories, basically. So having so much in common, they just really kind of clicked with each other. And another thing she was attracted to was Elsie's neatness. He was very neat and she just kind of like when she went to his house, it was immaculate. And she remembered thinking like, oh, this is nice. A man I don't have to like pick up after. More like serial killer. Watch out. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you know. Listen, I ladies, know. ladies, listen, I promise you this. If the, if a guy is neater and cleaner than you are. There's a problem. Run. You know what's so run. funny? Before I started dating Johnny, so this is like. I would say probably like a few months before I met you. Okay. I told you about this person. Uh-huh. Yeah. I started, I don't want to say I was dating him. Like we had gone on several dates or whatever. Um, and his house was so clean. It was, now I'm a very clean person. I need everything in order. Like I have said on this podcast before, I don't like it to look like someone lives in my house. I want my house to look like no human being has touched anything. Um, except when she's getting ready for work. Except, yeah. Then I'm a wild woman. <laughs> I, had to, I have yeah. to. I have to. I, have to. I come true. home. I come home to some wild crap. To a tornado. Yeah. Um, so um, his house was so clean, it scared me. Yeah. And then he was like, oh, I'll make dinner for us. And then I'm sitting there while he's making dinner, and I just – it's. There was like these weird vibes. And then he wanted to match with me. Ah, nah, dude. And I was like, this is very bizarre. I couldn't do it. And in reality, maybe a serial killer. You know what? I have to thank that guy because, you know. Yeah, because the next month I met you. Yeah, so thank you, guy, that used to be too uh, Too, too clean. Too clean, (laughs) too too weird. Too clean, too weird. (laughs) I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. When he wanted to match, that was it for me. I can't do that. We don't really ever match either. No, but like weirdly match. Like I was driving him. He's like, oh, what are you wearing? I don't know. What? And then I said, oh, I'm just in my like Yankees t-shirt and like jean shorts. And then he opens the door. I get to his house. He's in a Yankees t-shirt. Okay. It was bad. Do you think, I think it's safe to say. We're not going to a game. Okay, sorry. (laughs) I think it's safe to say I'm probably the most normal you've been with. Oh, one hundred percent. Which is which is not a which good thing. Which is not a good because I I'm not the sharpest <laughs> tool in the shed. I'm not oh, normal. Don't don't say that. But I will tell you that I'm glad that that happened. Yeah, glad. And he would randomly break into a British accent. Okay, stop. That's enough. I know. That's it was, so cringe. I what? John. I know. I ended it. I ended it. Guys, you see what, what what was she doing? What was she doing? He made a tremendous amount of money. Uh, well, I can't compete there. <laughs> But but look what I chose. I love. give love. I, give I chose love. love. <laughs> I love you unconditionally. Anyway, but yes, that okay. is a warning sign. If a guy's too neat, run. I agree. Do get out of there <laughs> because then he's gonna look down on you, and there's nothing worse than like a dude being like, "You're not neat." Oh, ew. Or you know he might be you know plotting your murder. Yeah. Well, well, I dodged it. 
You did. Dodge that bullet. Yes. Okay. So, sorry for the detour that we took there. Super detour. Um, So, when Kay had met Elsie, she had been introduced to him by a friend that she knew since high school. And at the time, he was going through the beginning phases of a divorce from his third wife, Marsha. But the fairy tale that Kay thought she was going to have with Elsie was abruptly cut short. She described it as his temper really getting the best of him, that he flew into violent, uncontrollable rages about the tiniest of things. Like when it would start raining and he just washed his car, he flipped out and he saw everything as a sign of disrespect Um, He flipped out anytime anything really just didn't go his way. And Kay eventually grew scared of these rages and she was tired of fighting. But the thing that really pushed Kay over the edge and I think gave her the strength and the power to break up with Elsie and end their engagement was the fact that Elsie seemed not to like her son. And I think you hit the nail on the head by saying he was the jealous type, the possessive type. And because Kay cared more about her son and gave him attention, he was jealous of that. And that's yeah. why he didn't like Jason. Yeah, because I also get this maybe the sense that maybe he's a little narcissistic. Yeah. And he wasn't nice to the poor foreign exchange student. That's so mean. Yeah. But I'm just saying, I, I think that he might be a little narcissistic. It explains yeah. a lot. And because of that, Kay broke things off. But he became obsessive about it. He wanted to be with her again. He would show up at her job, her home, call her all the time. He was relentless. And because she was lonely, sometimes she would give in. And this is when things like really started to come together for detectives. So they decided to find out more about Elsie Underwood. And in interviews that they had with Elsie's family members, friends, and former colleagues, they found out the following. And this is a lot. We're going to deep dive into Elsie Underwood here. Elsie had not had the best childhood. He was the middle child of Ethel and Floyd Underwood. When he was young, his father caught his mother having an affair and left the family. Um, For a while... Floyd, he tried to care for the three children, but he just was unable to do so, is what the kids would later say. Um, And Ethel didn't want to care for the children either. So they kind of bounced from like their father's house to their mother's house, um, then to other family members' houses, um, until Elsie's older brother ended up with their grandmother. And he and his younger sister ended up living with another aunt and uncle. With Relish, the uncle that raised Elsie, told stories of being a strict disciplinarian. Um, He said that he had to be in order to keep young Elsie under control. Once he tied him up in a sack to stop a temper tantrum, and then he threatened to do it again many times after, and Elsie knew that it was a real threat. As a punishment, Elsie was made to dress up in his sister's clothing and wear a and like have a pacifier in his mouth. And he made him 
then while he was dressed up that way, do chores outside the house. So his friends and the neighbors would see him. These are the makings of somebody that's a serial killer, I feel like. Oh, 100%. Because you know who else was made to dress up in girls' clothing as punishment? Charles Manson. Gacy? No, Jerry oh. Brudos. Oh, okay. Uh, he's known as the lust killer or the shoe fetish killer. I forget. He's on Mindhunter. Um, like he, he was like a feature on Mindhunter. Okay. But you still have to watch. I know. I'm sorry. Um, But you're right. That is something. I mean, you're shaming him. You're humiliating Humili- the him. The humiliation part, I yes. think, is what also like it gets them to. Yep. And Elsie's sister, who had lost contact with her brother, said that as children, they were whipped on a regular basis. If they did something wrong, they were told to stand on one leg for hours. And if they fell, they were whipped again. And you would think that this would bond the children, that they would kind of cling to each other because they were all each other had. But that wasn't what happened here. Margot, Elsie's sister, said that her brother had always been cruel. That he would tell her that he hated her all the time. He would walk up by her and hit her for no reason. Once he stole her locket, the only thing that she had from their parents, and he gave it to a girlfriend. That's not right. No. And then when Elsie got into girls, you know, like as he got older, She said that he was always weird about it, like he was obsessive and possessive over any girl that he liked. And she remembered that uh, when he was 17 years old, he had to go to court over something that he did involving a girl. And then she thought maybe it was two girls, like, but he was a juvenile, so they don't have the records on what he did. Right, because it's it's locked. It's sealed. Right, right. So wanting to know more about how he was in relationships, the detective spoke to past girlfriends. It wasn't good. He was very possessive and obsessive. He also had been obsessed with being a police officer, something that he was finally able to do. They say that's another thing um, with serial killers. Actually, he's very similar to Jerry Brudos in that Jerry Brudos also was like into being a police officer okay so maybe it was like a way of like getting away with stuff or learning techniques that wouldn't like get them caught i i don't know something there has to be something to that because i i I think that it's not because they want to help people they don't want to protect and serve you know (laughs) you know i think it's because they learn techniques and ways of getting away with what they want to do or a power thing i think it's a power thing i'm sorry i think it was ed kemper that was obsessed with being... I think it was Kemper. I mean, I trust you. I think it was. It's one or the other, I'm sure. No, I think it was Ed Kemper. Okay. All right, I'm sticking with it. All right. That's my final answer. Um, he was... And I think that that's just a thing. Like you said, a power thing. Because you're looking to get that, what you need, satiated for you. Like with BTK, where the murder stopped for a while, but he had a job that kind of satiated that power thing that he right. had over people. Um. So... One of the girlfriends said that she didn't like she thought what the first thing that was really weird was that one day Elsie just like had a key to her apartment, but she had never given him a copy. 
<laughs> that's so strange. Yeah, I would say that's a big no-no. Especially back that means you would have to take the key off and go make a copy. Yes. That yes. is so strange. Why would you do that? I feel like you still have to do that. It's still, I, you know, you're right. Yeah. I think you do. But that's Even still back weird. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, kid. <laughs> so then um, once he had the key, he would always show up like unannounced. Like he would just be in her apartment. Yeah, that's strange. You imagine you come home, your boyfriend just sitting on the couch. Hey. <laughs> hey, what are you doing? <laughs> you want to wear matching Yankee shirts? You want to hang out? Hello, governor. You want to like make an accent oh and hang God, out? Like that's so weird. So he would always try. Like she knew what he was trying to do. He would always accuse her of like having affairs or being with other men. So he was trying to catch her to see if, oh, are you home with a boy? Are you bringing a boy home? So like she knew what he was doing. Like he would even wait for her in parking lots. Red flags. So she knew that this wasn't normal and she tried to break up with him. But when she told him that she wanted to break things off, he threatened to shoot himself. She said that he... She said that obviously she didn't want him to do that. Um, But she really thought that things weren't working. So she was standing her ground and saying, I want to end this relationship, but I don't want you to harm yourself. But he took her keys and drove off in her car. And less than a minute later, she heard the unmistakable sound of a gunshot. He was playing with her. He was trying to make her feel like he did it. That is so sadistic. Yeah. So then she ran to where she thought he could have driven to, but she couldn't find the car anywhere. She was hysterical. And then a couple of hours later, Elsie shows back up with her car and an apology. It's like he had this, like, weird, like, childish outburst. Like, yeah, like, I'm going to show you. Yeah, what? What? So she couldn't believe what he had done. I mean, it was just, like, insane. And other girlfriends said that he was manipulative and persuasive. He would always have so much rage and then be so apologetic. You know, rage, apologize, rinse, repeat. And that same girlfriend said that he also had threatened suicide and when when she tried to break up with him and then when she did break up with him um he wrote her a letter another letter ooh and in this letter he's threatening to ruin her to run her out of town so he's like blackmailing her for breaking up with him yes yes because what there, is happening? he was blackmailing her actually because they had gotten into like a drunken incident where he was being very abusive to her, but when the police showed up, they wrote it as a drunken disorderly. Like, they dismissed her claim of his abuse because she was intoxicated. So he had this police report that was stating how intoxicated she was, and he was threatening to give it to her employer. Isn't that sad? And then that's Uh, why sometimes people don't call the police. So this is all going to carry into adulthood as well. Those who knew Elsie as an adult said that he would fly into a rage about the littlest thing, like a passenger leaving a cigarette burn or someone cutting him off. And when I say like flying into a rage, this isn't just like yelling. He would throw fits and these fits would last long amount of times. And then even though like he would calm down, he would still not let it go. He would talk about it for the rest of the day. 
That's pretty crazy. Yeah. So some people said he was difficult to be around. And because he was so neat and meticulous, he would often fly off the handle about things messing with that. Like if any, like, because he kept his car a certain way. And like, that was why the cigarette burn in the car seat flipped him out. Like anything that messed with his, the set routine that he had to have. Um, and then Elsie confided in a colleague once that he had caught his wife having an affair in a hotel room. This is his third wife. She had been naked in bed with another man when he walked in. Now, this must have been triggering for him because we know this is something that bothered him. This is what broke up his family initially. Remember, his father had caught his mother having an affair. Yeah, childhood trauma. Yes, (laughs) and that ended that relationship. And then he was always convinced that his girlfriends were cheating on him. And that's why he would show up in her apartment or. Yeah. And now, boom, he finds out his wife is having. So it's almost like he feels justified in all of his actions, which is bad, which is dangerous. Well, zero trust issues. But, you know, he has zero trust issues with the people that he's with. That's also childhood trauma and a product of being a, a child of parents who pretty much left each other and left the kids. Right. So that's why. But the fact that he's going to feel validated in those feelings is going to throw him off the deep end it's when what, it comes yeah. to his rage against women. Well, it kind of makes him believe that he was right, and it right. would that kind of, and it makes all the behaviors that he's doing justifiable. Correct. Which is so dangerous. Very dangerous. Um, in that moment, he told the coworker that he made the man walk out of the room naked and back to his car and that he had kept the man's wallet and scattered his cards all over the parking lot which oh like oh my god like the mother's freaking um cards uh, cards and wallet yep interesting oh dude i mean that's actually crazy how could the detectives not put this together at this point <laughs> i mean i would <laughs> like it is I would. lc but they had one question left Okay. You ready? I'm ready. When all of these awful things happened in her life, the letters, the phone calls, the murder of her mother, the gunshot through the house, the earlier vandalization of the car, um, her missing boyfriend, who did she call after it all happened? And she said every time... I called Elsie. She knew that things had not ended well with them romantically, but he said he would always be there for her. And every time something like that happened, he would. She would call him and he would be there to console her or help her. But she said she also thought of him. Every time something happened, her first instinct was that it had been him. But her mind would always talk her out of it. He was a police officer. He cared about her. He would never do those things. But now it was all making sense. He was doing this all in an attempt to get her to run to him. To need him. Yep. That's what it was. Yep. She needed him when all of this was happening. And if he was there to protect her and she would be safe, she would want to be with him again. 
right. oh, stay here all the time, Elsie, because I'm scared. He wanted her to look at him as the her s- number one. Her savior. Right. Her savior. And I am sure at this moment when the detectives kind of said that to Kay, her stomach dropped. You want to know why? Why? When she had been dating LC, Jason's room had been arranged differently. Jason had received a sports injury and a doctor, really something a doctor would only say in the 1990s, that it would be beneficial for him to get a waterbed because of the injury. <laughs> okay. Um, so Kay bought him the waterbed, but because it needed a warmer and it had to be close to a plug, they moved the bed from where it had been in front of the window to the other wall. Meaning he... He thought the bed was still under the window. Where it used to be. Where the dresser was. So he thought he killed the kid. He thought he was shooting him in the head. But the dresser was there because they rearranged the room. Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> I mean, listen, that is intent to kill. He knew of the layout or the old layout and shot yep. where he thought the kid would be. Yeah. Wow, man. What is wrong with you as a kid? Well, he was stopping. Kay broke up with with Elsie. I don't think she would have broken up with him if it hadn't been for Jason. Because Elsie wasn't good to Jason and Jason didn't like Elsie right. because of it. So if he eliminated the son, she'd be free to be with him. Right. It was everybody that was standing in the way of him being with Kay. Right. And then once everyone in her life's eliminated, who does she have to turn to? Elsie. Just him. Yeah. Another thing that made sense, the detectives, and this is something you brought up too. It's like, I was like, damn it. Uh, Catherine Miller's murder. She'd been shot twice at close range. And this is something that law enforcement calls a double tap. It's taught in police training. Officers are trained to do this during a deadly force situation because two shots, especially when there's, you know, could potentially be lack of ammunition, two shots mean twice the blood loss. So it's a quick kill. Right. So it's kind of like he went back to his training with the double tap. So basically at this point, LC is their guy. But the problem was they had no physical evidence. And that was something that they needed to have. The detectives attempted to contact him, but he must have known that something was wrong because he'd been iced out by Kay. So he told the detectives that he only wanted to speak through his attorney. Investigators were able to get a warrant, and through communication with Elsie's lawyer, they were able to set up a time, which was February 1st, 1994. And the warrant was for both his house and his cars. And when they got to his residence, they were shocked. To say it was meticulous was an understatement. It was almost like they were in a sterile environment. I mean, it was like everything was absolutely perfect. Like in his pantry, all of the cans and everything in it wasn't, were in alphabetical order. Everything was facing the same direction. In his closet, all of his hang- hangers were, like, equidistant away from each other. 
his loafers, the tassels were like taped down so they would stay perfect. I know somebody like that. Do you? Yeah, I won't blow their name up or anything. But I know somebody that I that I know for a very long time who yeah. is just like that. I mean to the T. Like if you were to touch anything on a bookshelf or like it was the end of like the world. They know. Yeah. Yeah. So um next they move well, they searched the whole house. There was nothing there. But like you said, he's law enforcement. He knows how to cover his tracks, plus he's a really clean person. So there was nothing there that could be damaging or could be used as evidence against him. So next they move to the search of his cars. They open the trunk and the hood. Well, they open the hood and it's a 1979 Monte Carlo. And they're like, it's immaculate. Like he must clean the inside of his car. My dad definitely washes the inside of the engine. Oh my god! Bay. Yes, and that's what was washed. <laughs> yeah. I thought of your dad right away. My dad definitely. I was like, would do oh, that. my father-in-law does that. <laughs> um, but there wasn't a speck of dust or dirt or oil, anything anywhere. But on the underside of the trunk, they found something that Elsie must have missed—a footprint. Like someone had been inside trying to kick their way out. No way. Yes. Are you telling me that Victor was alive in the trunk? I am telling you that. And then killed later off-site? Well, he had to be driven that 100 miles. In the trunk? In the trunk. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. In a perfect world, they would try and match Victor Gunnarsson's shoe to the imprint in the trunk. But they couldn't because Gunnarsson had been found without shoes on, without clothes on. Right, which is intentional. Right. So they photographed the imprint, but because they had found that there, they figured, okay, he was in the trunk. So let's seize everything in the trunk. And that's what they did. They cut out the inside of the trunk, uh, put it all in bags, and sent it to be processed in their labs. When the detective tried to call him about this, Elsie did not pick up, but later returned the call and left a voicemail, where, very true to himself, he threw a temper tantrum. He was yelling and screaming, you son of a bitch, this is, to the detective, you think you're going to ruin me, but you're not. And the detective, like, kept listening to the voicemail, like, oh, I hope he threatens me, because if Elsie threatened him, they could arrest him. And then Kay and Jason would feel safe. At this point, this man is so full of rage, they were scared that he was going to do the final step of what he would have done and and hurt that family again. Well, I really hope, though, even though they're so concerned, I hope that they actually did the right thing and put some sort of... Well, they did. They put a patrol unit on their house. Okay, I mean, that's good. I mean, don't leave anything to chance, right? But, I mean, this guy could really potentially get around it but unfortunately elsie did not threaten the detective so he couldn't be arrested and it was during this time that Kay was a wreck first she felt responsible for bringing elsie into the lives of her family and loved ones imagine that your ex-boyfriend that killed your mother your boyfriend tried to kill your son is just walking around the same town as you I would be I would be terrified. I probably wouldn't leave. Right. Well, the crime lab, um, they had 
Well, at the crime lab, they had searched the mat and couldn't find anything. But as the techs were folding up the mat to send it back to the sheriff's office, he found a hair, actually a cluster of hairs, that he hadn't originally found. Really doesn't sound like this guy did a good job because (laughs) he found 15 head hairs. How do you just miss 15 hairs? Like 15? (laughs) Like 15. It's not like, oh, man, there was this one hair that eluded me. 15 hairs. Maybe it was dark. Uh, Maybe it was dark. It was. He did have dark hair and it was a black mat. But the hairs were matched to Victor Gunnarsson. I mean, you kind of feel bad for this guy now, you? Don't feel you feel terrible for yeah. him. Yeah. He and Kay could have had a beautiful future together, and it was ripped from them by this evil man. Yeah, and the, and the poor mother, too. I mean, jeez. And listen, I know that what Elsie Underwood went through as a child was bad, but I feel like you can at the same time feel bad for someone's childhood, but feel like they were evil for what they did when they became an adult. Because his sister grew up the same way he did, but he seemed to be sinister at a young age. Right. Because instead of wanting to, like, protect his sister or be close to him, he was horrific to her, abusive to her even. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, just because people have rough childhoods, I mean, obviously there's more to it than just a rough childhood. You know, if they are dealing with someone, you know, some, I'm sorry, if they're dealing with something psychological something wrong with them. I mean, it's a totally different ball game. Yeah. But if it happens to just be a rough childhood, then I feel like there's no justification for well, what you're doing. this was a horrific childhood. No, 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 no. I understand. But I think that it doesn't... I think that he was already bad to begin with and this made him worse. Yeah, I'm just... I Like I said, I, I the only thing I could really get behind is that you're dealing with some sort of mental illness... Couple that with a bad childhood, no role models, no direction. I could see you going down a bad road. Well, it's and nature even, and nurture right. working against and you And even here. then, it still does not justify what you do. Agreed. You know? So because the investigation on Victor Gunnarsson belonged to Watuga County, that those were the ones who arrested Elsie Underwood. The theory of the police was this. Now, Kay had seen Elsie drive by when she was on her last date with Victor, but he often did that. Um, So Elsie had seen them together, and he'd probably been watching them while they were hanging out at the fire pit in her yard, making plans to go look for Christmas trees the next day. And it was there that they also shared a kiss. Elsie saw this. And he followed Victor back to his apartment complex. They thought maybe the way that Elsie overpowered him was that not only did he have a gun, but he probably had on his police uniform and was using it as a like a ruse to kind of get him to comply. Then he somehow gets Victor into the trunk of his car and duct tapes his wrist together. He then drives him 100 miles northwest into the Blue Ridge Mountains He brings him into the woods at gunpoint, makes him strip, and shoots him. That's really sad. Yeah. And from the way that the bullets were, it was like he was kneeling. So he must have forced him on his knees and then shot him, which is very similar to the situation in which Catherine Miller was killed. 
Detectives believed wholeheartedly that he had killed Catherine Miller. Because, as later disclosed by Kay, L.C. was not telling the truth. Kay's mother did not like L.C. Underwood. He didn't, he did things for her one time. Like, Elsie very much probably planned out the murder of Catherine Miller in saying that he had been in the house. He had showered there once because he did yard work for her once. So that would explain any, like, hairs being in the house or anything like that. Um, But the problem with the murder of Catherine Miller was that there was no evidence. And if they wanted Elsie Underwood to be in jail... They couldn't try him for both the murders of Victor Gunnarsson and Catherine Miller because there was no physical evidence connecting him with the murder of Catherine Miller. So in order to get a conviction, they had to go with the Victor Gunnarsson murders. And they knew that they had, if they needed to, to rely on that, of the murder of Catherine Miller later. Right. I mean, I think there would be enough there to convict him. It would be hard because... Um, both guns used in the shootings weren't registered to him. They were guns that he obtained by other means and then got rid of. So there were no physical connections except for the hairs found in his one car. Which is pretty damning. I mean, why no, would someone else's is, hair be in but there? But the Catherine Miller case, yeah, there's nothing. nothing. Yeah, no, I get that. So Elsie Underwood was found guilty of first-degree murder in 1997. He was sentenced to life in prison. On December 23, 2018, Elsie Underwood passed away in prison due to cancer at the age of 67. What is sad is that for some time, Kay had been estranged from Jason, her son, because as you can imagine, what happened between them and because of Elsie was very complicated. Um, So they really didn't talk for many years. Like Jason kind of felt like his mother was responsible for having Elsie in the picture. Yeah, that's it, sad. It was really sad. But but based on what has been seen on social media, the two of them are repairing that bond. And she's been spending time with Jason and his wife and their daughter. That's good. There was a recent investigation discovery show on this case. And it, the end culminated in the two of them talking and having a meeting. Oh, that's good. So I think that they are working on repairing their relationship, which is good because in the end, they just have each other because Catherine was murdered. Yeah, you know, you don't want... Look, what happened here is so tragic. You would hate to see the only bond and relationship left after all of this destroyed because of another man's sick, twisted desires. It would almost be like letting him win. Letting him win. Even after he's in prison, then he can't get out, and then him dying, you're still going to give him the power to you know, take more from you. So I'm glad at least they're coming together and fixing their relationship. That's, that's, that's the silver lining in all this, I guess. I agree. I completely agree. And even though there wasn't any, uh, you know, he wasn't, uh, charged with the murder of her mother, you, you know, at least justice was served with Victor at least, because we know that if he did this to Victor, most likely he did it to the mother. And, you know, he would have done this to, other people if he got away with this and he could have killed her son yeah he could have killed three people i mean he definitely meant to do that he did isn't this case wild this was good this was very very good um i like the way that you presented it i'm sorry if i you know (laughs) guys you know what i knew the second i you knew it was elsie the second he gave that 
initial interview with the first police officer. Yeah, because he asked the question, "Can I tell? Can I talk about this to to Kay?" Mm-hmm. And it was almost like he was trying to get confirmation as whether or not he was a suspect or not, or whether she was a suspect, or whether she or was a suspect. Was, yeah. Right? He wanted to know how where their head was at, right? And that's what gave right. it away to me. And then I started thinking well, about you everything. Thought it was a police officer just from the Catherine Miller scene. <laughs> yeah. You're good. Yeah. I mean, that was because it was setting up a scene. You know, it was definitely setting right. up a scene to make it look like it was something that it wasn't. You know, I no, don't know. I agree. You, I don't did, know. you did a good job again. Well, thank you. Well, before we go, I just want to say thank you to our new subscribers or people on Patreon who upped their pledge. So we just want to say thank you to Sarah Davies, Samantha Peoples, Linda Spinner, Molly. Blondie Bombshell upped their pledge. Elise Leardham Gadsen, Kate, Raya Caldwell, Gilla McGregor, Anne Reimer, Tiffany Howard, Andy Williams, Keisha, Amani Sejay, Tatter, Estefania, Megan Pollock, Jolene Morgan, Jessica, Kim Moreland, Kayla, Trace Parker, Jules Chester, Alexa, Brittany Based, Amanda Prow, Pernell Savlov Lagani. I hope I did that right. Sounds right. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> Anne Skiver. <laughs> I'm trying to help you. I know. Anne Van Skiver, Michelle, Marsha Peterson, Lily Cash upped her pledge, St- Stacy Struthers. Sana Horta, Brandy Gutierrez, Shelby Rodriguez, Allison Adams, Jessica Weaver, Cody Dure, Nicole Greenway, Ala Corey Wright, Grace Upped Her Pledge, Autumn, Amy Nugent, Addie Kane, Ashley Foreman, Nikki Simpson, Vicki O'Neill, Colleen Berry, Corinne Petras, Becky Jennings, Chrissy Evans, JB up their pledge, Laura Casillas, Spencer Reddy, Sherry Jackson, Lily Burke, Jocelyn Dozier, Leslie Heinrich, Gail Williamson up her pledge, Gloria, Mike, and Britt Durr. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys. Pa- that was a long list. It was. That was a lot. I if I mispronounce your name, please let me know, and then I will just pronounce it right next time. So please don't feel embarrassed if I said your name wrong. I'm embarrassed. Tell me it's wrong, and then I'll just we'll redo it because we want to get it right. Well, guys, until next time, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.